Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. And whether it be social media bot campaigns or murky assassination plots, the call is hands off Haiti and hands off Cuba. We call on all anti-imperialist and black international forces to stand with the Haitian people and oppose U.S. and European interventions deployed under the guise of critical support. We support the Haitian people and their rejection of foreign occupation and imperialism. And for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, I wonder aloud about racist Jim Crow conditions and brutal dictatorship before the Cuban Revolution and ask writer and activist Manolo de los Santos if this is the throwback reality that the right-wing plotters want to see return. Not to disregard other elements of the story, but it's important definitely to point out that the U.S. has never looked at Cuba as an equal, has never looked at Cuba as a country to respect. On the contrary, it always sees it as the runaway slaves that needs to be brought back to the plantation. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, on the groundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital for July 16th, 2021. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, five days out from the historic protests in Cuba about lack of food, medicine, and electricity, and also unprecedented corporate media coverage of said protests, of course, omitting mention of the illegal U.S. economic blockade and stranglehold on the island, supporters of Cuba in the United States are rallying to defend the Cuban Revolution. The National Network on Cuba, made up of 50 organizations, is preparing to welcome Cuban-Americans walking from Miami to Washington, D.C. to deliver petitions with 26,000 signatures to the White House, demanding that the illegal 60-year-old embargo and additional 240 sanctions put into place by the Trump regime be lifted. The welcome rally will be Sunday, July 25th, 2 to 4 p.m. at Lafayette Square in front of the White House. Cheryl Labash, co-chair of the network, told on the ground that contrary to the hostility of corporate media and vocal elements of the Miami Cuban community, most Americans want to see the embargo lifted. What we've been trying to do over the, especially since the pandemic, is really show that the people of the United States do not support the blockade of Cuba. What the United States government is doing in this case is against the will of the people. We have gotten resolutions at nearly 40 city and labor councils, state legislatures, school boards, uh, a whole host representing 30 million people, at least 30 million people. There Mm -hmm. are people in every state who have identified themselves with pictures saying, hands off Cuba. Uh, There are these Cuban-Americans who are walking. Uh, We need Congress to act. We need need Biden to act. We need action to relieve the Cuban people. Cuba can take care of itself. They want to present Cuba as a failed state, but it's not. It's developed five vaccines 
that will not make profit for Pfizer, but will help the people of the world because Cuba will distribute it based on your ability uh, to pay. Uh, Cuba will help other countries like it helps with doctors. Uh, so that, I mean, that's why there's a broader interest. It's bigger than Cuban Americans. The whole world wants this blockade to end and the people of the United States want it too. The walkers, the people who are walking uh, to from Miami to Washington, D.C., uh, these people are Cuban-Americans. And I'm wondering if this is kind of like a counterforce to all of these rallies and actions that are presenting Cuban-Americans as one monolith against the Cuban revolution and aid to Cuba. Well, yes, Esther. In fact, that that is one of the most remarkable things about this caravan movement and this walk, because for the first time in certainly my memory, there is an opposition voice, a credible Cuban-American-led opposition voice to Menendez and Marco Rubio and the people who are against Cuba and who support the blockade. So they do provide a, a counterbalance. They have been pretty firm that the problem is not what's happening in Cuba, what the problem is the blockade, and it's the blockade that has to be addressed. They've been keeping on that message. And it's very important, very important to have that additional, that, that new independent Cuban voice here inside the United States. Okay. Well, we're going to remind people about July 25th at Lafayette Square out in front of the White House. That's from 2 to 4 p.m. Okay. So I've been speaking with Cheryl Labash, co-chair of the National Network on Cuba. Thank you, Cheryl. And we'll see you on July 25th. Thank you so much, Esther. And more details are emerging about the July 11th protests, which now appear to be a part of an elaborate organized online effort to further destabilize the socialist government. An investigation by Spanish analyst Julian Macias Tovar details how a flurry of fake accounts, robots, and algorithms were used to create hashtag SOS Cuba from a single Twitter account in Spain. That one account alone posted over 1,000 tweets over two days on July 10th and 11th with five retweets per second and more than 1,500 Twitter accounts associated with hashtag SOS Cuba were created just hours before the rallies. One key participant was Argentinian Augustin Antonetti, who was part of the right-wing Fondacion Libertad and connected to campaigns against the left, including former Bolivian President Evo Morales and Mexico's President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. The Cuba campaign included manipulated images, for example, portraying larger pro-government rallies in Cuba as being anti-government rallies, and U.S.-funded Cuban individual artists are some of the main actors online and leading the street protests. Tovar concluded that considerable resources are dedicated to the campaign, which he describes as, quote unquote, not improvised and very well designed. 
he implicated, quote, structures and agencies of the United States with laboratories dedicated to create these conditions and achieve these objectives, end quote. This is Kay Pritzker of Breakthrough News with his analysis. Isn't it kind of curious that within hours of the initial protests in Cuba, they garnered the instantaneous attention of the entire U.S. news media, Congress, and even the president? I mean, there were literally hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. protesting for Palestine, but that never got a hashtag or wall-to-wall coverage. It was total radio silence. If this all seems suspicious to you, you're not crazy. There's a ton of evidence that clearly shows that fake videos, bots, and outright funding of protesters are being used to make the protests in Cuba look way bigger and more significant than they really are. Let's take a look. Now, the media's been saying that these protests represent the will of the Cuban people. And while there are definitely videos showing a couple thousand or so people protesting, Cuba is a country of 11 million people. This might be why the media's been publishing misleading photos to make it look like the protests are much larger than they really are. For example, this CNN article heavily implies that the people in this photo are in Cuba. But people were quick to point out that the street sign in the photo is from Miami. One of the protesters is even wearing a MAGA hat. A bunch of mainstream outlets took it a step further by posting a picture of a pro-government demonstration, but captioning it saying it was an anti-government demonstration. You can tell they support the government because they're waving flags that say July 26th, the day Fidel Castro and his guerrilla army launched its first attacks against the Batista regime. Only people who support the Cuban government celebrate this day. There were also several social media accounts posting videos of huge marches in other countries claiming they were videos from Cuba. Here's a video of a march in Buenos Aires that that people were claiming took place in Cuba. And speaking of social media accounts, what's up with all these accounts with zero followers, all created in the last few months, that have all of a sudden taken up an interest in Cuba? I mean, seriously, who's behind this? Like, I really don't believe that people name themselves Rachel76039947 or Yoyita4523121 and think, Oh yeah, that's gonna be my screen name. And did you notice the tweets? They both said the same thing, like word for word. So unless Cubans have some kind of telepathic brain connection that they haven't told us about, I'm calling bullshit. Now, despite that astroturf quality of the protests, corporate media picked up and ran with the campaign, particularly in South Florida, where Miami's mayor, Francis Suarez, actually told Fox News that a U.S. airstrike on Cuba should be a considered response. Are you suggesting airstrikes in Cuba? What I'm suggesting is that that option is one that has to be explored and cannot be uh, just simply discarded as, as an option that is not on the table. Also in Florida, police stopped traffic on a major highway, the Palmetto Expressway in Miami-Dade County to accommodate a small group of anti-Cuba protesters, despite passage of a recent state law banning protests that block traffic. And that makes blameless anyone who would strike or even kill a protester in the street. But of course, this law was targeting and threatening Black Lives Matter protesters, And in this case, none of these anti-Cuba protesters were cited and police cars parked across the highway shielded protesters from any potential oncoming traffic. Meanwhile, on Thursday, there was possible 
positive breaking news that Biden is considering lifting Trump's ban on family remittances to Cuba. But later, that positive news was dampened when 46 went full McCarthyite Cold War in his press conference after meeting with German Chancellor Angela Merkel. More on Cuba later in the show. Switching to Haiti, Telesor English reports that the director of the Colombian police announced Wednesday that one of the Colombian ex-military men allegedly involved in the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise received from the United States the sum of $50,000 to plan the operation. Meanwhile, the New York Times is reporting that the head of Powell Security for Moise was taken into police custody on Thursday. The chief, Dimitri Herard, made several stopovers in the Colombian capital, Bogota, in the months before the assassination. Questions have focused on reports that none of Mr. Herard's security force fired a shot despite the approach of two dozen armed mercenaries, their entry into the presidential compound, and the eruption of gunfire that killed Moise and seriously injured his wife. The Washington Post also reported this week that some of the Colombians arrested or linked to the murder plot had received training by the U.S. military as part of a long-term cooperation between the countries. Other experts in the region still have questions about the possible involvement of other insiders, including self-declared interim president Claude Joseph, who was funded as a student activist by the U.S. National Endowment for Democracy. He was immediately recognized as president within hours of Moise's death by Haiti's special representative at the United Nations and was quick to request intervention by U.S. and U.N. troops. On Thursday, Biden rejected Joseph's request for military assistance. He said, quote, the idea of sending American forces into Haiti is not on the agenda at this moment, end quote. But Biden added that additional Marines are being deployed to augment embassy security. At the press conference, Biden did express optimism that the Democrats' $3.5 trillion budget blueprint unveiled in the Senate this week would be passed. The budget includes so-called human infrastructure enhancements, such as better pay for child care, elder care, and more funding for public higher education. And it is precisely those who work caring for others who marched and rallied in D.C. this week in support of the legislation. Lydia Curtis was down on the National Mall. Thousands of domestic and service workers converged on the nation's capital from across the country to demand, among other things, a raise in pay to at least the proposed federal minimum wage of $15 an hour. Dubbed the Care is Essential March, the exuberant crowd of mostly women braved the blazing heap to demand that Congress pass an economic recovery package that provides more benefits, job security, sick leave, and paid vacation to the 2.2 million domestic workers in the United States. Organized by Service Employees International Union, SEIU, 
and the National Domestic Workers Alliance, NDWA. Advocates say that budget increases for domestic workers should be a part of any infrastructure bill. NDWA members Fatima Faust and Cynthia explain why as they march down Pennsylvania Avenue with their We Dream in Black contingent. So with National Domestic Workers Alliance, We Dream in Black Durham chapter, and we are out here today to fight for care workers because care workers matter, because care work matters, because without our work, nobody else can go to work. So we need to do this to let them know that our pay matters and what we do and how we take care of others matter. Without us, there is nothing that they can do. Late Tuesday night, Senate Democrats announced an agreement on a $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation plan. Investments in home care are expected to be included in the bill. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. In other dramatic news from Capitol Hill, the chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus, Representative Joyce Beatty of Ohio, was arrested in the Senate office building on Thursday, along with other activists demonstrating for voting rights. Beatty was protesting about the failure of the Senate to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act in Congress. Those laws would protect access to voting, even as Republicans pass sweeping voter suppression laws in states around the country. One such state is Texas. And Beatty's protest was held the same week that dozens of Texas state Democrats arrived here in D.C. after fleeing Texas on a charter flight to deny the Texas Republican legislature a quorum to pass new voting laws that will take away voting innovations such as drive-through voting, which boosted turnout last November, and also add controversial components such as additional poll watchers, which Democrats say could be used as they were in the past to intimidate voters. And finally, in culture and media, the new book, I Alone Can Fix It, due out July 20th by Washington Post journalists Carol Leonig and Philip Rucker, includes many accounts of how close the U.S. came to a coup in the final days of the Trump presidency, with Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley as narrator and hero. Reporters who have received advanced copies write that the book recounts how Milley told aides he feared a coup and told them, quote, they may try but won't succeed. Quote, you can't do this without the military. You can't do this without the CIA and FBI. We're the guys with the guns, end quote. He also said he saw parallels between Trump's rhetoric of election fraud and Adolf Hitler's insistence to his followers at the Nuremberg rallies that he was both a victim and their savior, end quote. Millie told A's that they were existing in a Reichstag moment. And finally, activists with the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition, which is working to save and honor a former burial site for the enslaved in Maryland, is shifting focus to a developer who apparently just won a bid to purchase the controversial burial site in a surprise sale by Montgomery County. On Monday, the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition held a demonstration at the Bethesda corporate headquarters of Charge Ventures, a real estate firm that won the bid to purchase the Westwood Tower Apartments, 
which includes a paved parking lot that activists, including historians and archaeologists, say is covering the historic Moses Macedonia African Cemetery. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, president of the coalition, called the sale by the county a backdoor deal with no public notice or hearing. The coalition plans to continue demonstrating at the offices of Charger Ventures. The coalition is on Facebook at Save Bethesda African Cemetery, or you can email nofearcoalition at aol.com or call 240-731-9577. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. I was uh, four, four years old when the Marine left Haiti, the U.S. Marine left Haiti. I was a kid. And every time a Marine battalion passed in front of the house, my father took my hand and said, don't look at them. Don't look at them. And every May 18, which is the, the flag day, defiantly, he put the Haitian flag in front of the house. And I said, Father, what is that? What does that mean for you? He said, that means that you are Haitian. That means that my great-grandfather fought at Vertier. Never forget that. You are Haitian. You are from this land. You are not French, you are not British, you are not American, you are Haitian. Right now, let me tell you something. I've been in this city for a number of years. Number of years. I met many Haitians who were here. We used to have committees 10, 20 years ago to organize the, the Haitian community to do a lot of things that we. I'm not, we're not necessarily doing these days. 35 years ago. Huh? 35 years. 35, okay, yeah. say 35. Try to get me a little older. But basically, <laughs> it's important. What is happening in Haiti, there's a reflection of that here in, the, in our community. I work with day laborers, with poor people in the city, and many of them are Haitians. Many of them are Haitians that I meet them at churches and different places where they are. And they need to get more involved in a lot of these things. We are trying to do that. It's important that this city or the nation develops a committee, a strong committee, to support the Haitian people in their struggles. There's no question about it. We are a little behind, but we have to push it forward. Yes. What is happening in Haiti should be happening to us too. It's happening to us. Yes. The same enemy that the Haitian people are getting is the same enemy that we have here. Yes. No right. question about it. Yeah. It's a struggle that things that are happening anywhere in the world, we are getting ripped off here and mistreated. That needs to be changed. So we need to unite all those struggles to make sure that all those struggles come together. We can't have separate struggles. We have to have togetherness because the world needs the struggle of the United States, the working class struggle of the United States. If the working class struggle of the United States does not get stronger, we're not going to be able to help the rest of the world. It's a reality. We need the working class and the people of the United States to start getting together because the fight is not only here, but it's international too. So we really need to fight and get together. So I'm here. 
I am from the Claudia Jones School for Political Education, which is an organization that we're trying to build, which was Claudia Jones was a Caribbean woman who came to this country and did a lot of work for the movement in this country. And we need we need to support it, we need to work with that. Hi, my name is Erica Keynes. I am a coordinated committee member of the Black Alliance for Peace, and I'm also a member of the Maryland um, Working Class Party, the Human People's Progress Party. Um, I'm out here today in support of Haitian self-determination. Most recently, the Haitian president, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated. But what we are here to say is, uh, regardless of the, the circumstances around the, the assassination, we do not want U.S. intervention in Haiti. We understand that the U.S. alongside the core group and OAS and all pan-European powers have consistently been in Haiti. So when we're talking about intervention, we have to understand that those powers have never left. They've always been there. They've been there before the assassination and they're still there. Um, and we know that most recently the Constitution, the referendum for the Constitution was pushed back. So we do understand that these are all uh, major issues that are going to determine the livelihood of Haitians in Haiti. And what we're here to um, say um, unequivocally is that no U.S. intervention and that the Haitian people are, are allowed and have the, the right to self-determine. Okay. What do you think about all the different people who are claiming to be president and prime minister right now? Is that how do you how do you see that in terms of U.S. Well, we, yeah. involvement? Well, again, um, we know that that Haiti has never really had uh, a chance to really be self determinant even post revolution. So we we see all these when I mentioned that all of these figures and all these groups were still in Haiti, it's because they have been trying to determine Haitian elections and Haitian politics. And when we look at what the UN just did with the closed UN meeting that decided that the prime minister was just going to just extend and, and just be the temporary leader of Haiti, we also have to remember who he is and his connection to Ned uh, with the National Endowment of Democracy. So I don't think any of these things are, are not important to note or important to look into, but we have to understand that without advocating for Haitian self-determination, determination of the Haitian people, especially the working class Haitian people, because we do understand Haitian elites are very well tied into a lot of the mess going on too. So we have to advocate for the working class people of Haiti, and we have to fully, fully be unequivocally, like make our stance known that we do not want U.S. intervention, U.S. out of everywhere. That was Erica Keynes of the Black Alliance for Peace speaking to Sputnik News at the Haiti Solidarity Rally held July 15th outside the U.S. State Department in Washington, D.C. Arturo of the Claudia Jones School for Political Education was featured for her. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Samba, don't panic, 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 don
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, at the time of this broadcast, we are five days out from historic protests in Cuba with hundreds of people in different cities and towns rallying against the lack of food, lack of medicine, as the country faces a spike in COVID-19 cases and rolling blackouts of electricity as the government prioritizes scarce resources for these COVID patients. Joining me to discuss fact and fiction of this moment of both post-revolutionary Cuba and the pre-revolutionary U.S.-backed dictatorship is Manolo de los Santos, founding director of the People's Forum in New York City and a researcher and specialist in Latin America with the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Welcome to On the Ground, Manolo. Thank you, Esther, for inviting me. It's an honor to be with you and your audience. Well, I'm so glad you could join me. And as I mentioned when we were setting up this talk, I'm fitting this into a regular segment we have on this show called The F Word on Fascism. And I'm fitting it here for a number of reasons. Not only, as I said, to do a reality check on the type of government that the U.S. backed, you know, the dictatorship that the Cuban Revolution defeated and that the U.S. backed anti-government forces in Cuba today would what seemingly would like to restore that, you know, we see these right-wing Cubans in Miami, you know, seemingly protesting to restore, but also to bring out the lies and kind of slanted coverage in corporate media right now in these various social media bots that totally ignore the illegal 60-year-old U.S. economic blockade and sanctions that have only worsened in recent years. So I know that's a lot, but this is where I want to start. So corporate media and, as I said, these social media bots have reported widely on the Sunday, July 11th protests. But you lived in Cuba for six years. And so tell us what they did not report. Like, what are they not telling us about what is going on in Cuba that led to the July 11th protests? I received this week uh, an email from a civil society group the Cuban Association of the United Nations sent out a statement describing Sunday's protest as a quote-unquote provocation orchestrated by counter-revolutionary groups paid by the United States. Well, I think the most important element to raise here is that in all the commentary, in all the analysis, in all the reporting of mainstream media in the United States, they have missed the most glaring issue in these protests, which is that an economic, financial, and commercial blockade that has been in place for 60 years has created uncountable numbers of suffering among the Cuban people. That the conditions that Cubans see themselves in today of scarcity in food and medicine are clearly the result of this inhumane and cruel policy that the United States government insists on using. So it almost feels like what we saw on Sunday was the hangman telling the victim, it's your fault that your neck is in a noose. 
Mm. Sadly, that is the way the U.S. government and the U.S. media is seeing this. The fact that they refuse to talk about their cruel sanctions against the Cuban people is is almost an insult to the reality that Cubans have to live with every day. Because the blockade, the U.S. sanctions affect every single aspect of their lives from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed. It determines what food they eat. It determines what treatment they get at hospitals. It determines how they get to work every day. It determines what materials their children receive when they go to school. It determines everything. So it's shameful that the U.S. very selectively wants to talk about Cuba without any reference at all to the inhumane policy that they've maintained for these 60 years. I saw one figure that this blockade and these sanctions have cost the island an estimated $130 billion since 1962. And like you, I noticed that the media did not report on the pro-revolutionary protests. They didn't report on Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel going into the streets, into the protests to speak to the people. And he mentioned the impact of the blockade. So I guess if they had your basic reporting when you're reporting on protests and counter-protests, they would have actually aired him. But now that I think about it, when was the last time I saw the Cuban president featured on a American news broadcast, you know, with a translator basically telling people what he's saying and what he's expressing, the facts that he's putting forth. So no news about that. And not only do you have these sanctions, but Trump had added 243 new measures and new sanctions that Biden promised to remove when he was campaigning for president. He hasn't removed them. And Cuba was also placed by Trump on the list of countries sponsoring terrorism, which puts a whole other onerous a weight on the country in terms of other countries being willing to trade with you, unless those countries be put in the crosshairs by the United States. So, you know, I visited Cuba a few times and it was always clear to me that white Cubans, wealthier Cubans, despite their protests and these vicious attacks that have come from Miami, that they benefited the most from the efforts that Cuba tried to implement to survive in terms of tourism, small scale shops and businesses, you know, uh, the paladars, the restaurants that people had in their homes. And with Trump's sanctions, these people were hurt. But on this side, the Miami Cuban community still supported Trump. And on the Cuba side, it seems like these are the people who are still coming out to protest against the revolution. So I'm just wondering, you know, from your perspective, is that because they see this as a this time of misery during the pandemic as the time to strike and to try to hurt the, the revolution even more, despite the fact that they're suffering themselves? I think that the blockade has always negatively affected all Cubans living on the island, all Cubans living on the island. And in the period of the pandemic, with worsening conditions, it has affected all people in Cuba, black and white. Not to say that there aren't, you know, historical differences and disparities, but the blockade 
and the recent, you know, measures by the Trump administration gravely affected everyone on the island. I think no one can escape the fact that, you know, in one year alone, Cuba lost over 2.4 billion in revenue from the tourist industry and other industries on the island. Everyone has been sort of affected in serious damaging ways. And I think that there's a situation that is developing on the island where if in the past families could sort of manage to do a little better, and sometimes these were white families could do a little better due to remittances from their family members in the U.S., particularly in Florida, that is no longer the case because the U.S. government doesn't allow remittances from the U.S. to Cuba at this point. I right. Mean, and that was one of the Trump yeah, sanctions, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, there are very limited ways for family members in the U.S. to help their kin in Cuba. So take that into reality. That was not, if anything, intentional to raise the level of pressure on the Cuban people to actually create the sort of a situation that couldn't have led to anything but protests on the island. And I think that's important to say that these protests are not necessarily, they're not political protests in the sense that they're not necessarily against the political process. The majority of people in Cuba continue to support the revolution. They continue to believe in in socialism as a project, as a future project. Mm -hmm. The reality is that most people are out, we're out to protest on Sunday out of mere frustrations over access to food and medicine, over the electrical outages, which are real legitimate thing. And and the president recognizes where I think it gets bad is that there are definitely agents of U S imperialism living in Cuba who have taken advantage of these frustrations of these legitimate protests to turn them into violent protests for the overthrow of the Cuban revolution. And I think that's where U S is like a shark that smells blood in the water and is seeing this, what could seem as apparent weakness by the Cuban government and responding to this whole crisis and seeks to put even more pressures on Cuba. I mean, I believe to this point that the U.S. is really believing that the Cuban revolution will be overthrown soon enough. They will be met with the shock, though, that the majority of people in Cuba continue to support their government, continue to support the revolution, and actually won't stand by the violent behavior of their agents. Now, speaking of agents... On my last trip to Cuba, I know a lot of folks, I think more in the education sector, were very concerned about young Cubans being kind of seduced by, you know, just U.S. propaganda, you know, maybe what they could see with more of an opened up situation on the Internet in terms of Internet access. The same things that we see here, you know, music videos, hip hop videos, hip hop artists, you know, with the rented mansion for the music video and kind of giving this sense of life in the U.S. in a way that we know doesn't really exist. And so first, tell us about the U.S.-backed provocateurs that, you know, how that system works. And if you think that the younger generation is particularly targeted and has been impacted by kind of misinformation and these types of efforts on the island. Well, I would say that since January 1st of 1959, the United States government has been finding and looking to overthrow the Cuban government, the Cuban revolution. And they've done everything within their arsenal, their power, their capacities, their agencies of intelligence to do this. 
They've attempted to assassinate leaders of the Cuban government, including Fidel Castro, with at least over 635 known assassination attempts, without talking about assassination attempts against other leaders. They have brought biological weapons to destroy Cuban crops and Cuban agriculture. We cannot forget that it was the United States the first to blow a Cuban airliner in, in mid-flight. It was the first time of this type of terrorist act occurred in, the, in world history, leading to the death of tens of young Cuban athletes and workers. So there's constantly been in Cuba the attempt by the United States to overthrow them at all costs, incurring in many deaths and much suffering for the Cuban people. I think in the last few years, they've sort of seen the need and sort of a target in young people. You've said it. I mean, I think we're living in a globalized world with growing access to social media. And definitely there are many young people who frustrated for either the right reasons or the wrong reasons, but equally frustrated, you know, see in U.S., in the U.S. culture and their government, an alternative, you know. And the U.S. government has basically taken that and sort of built an approach to sort of lure them even more to the side of counter-revolution in the United States. But ultimately, I think the, the issue is that whenever the U.S. talks about bringing freedom, whenever the U.S. talks about saving countries, we just have to look at the example of Haiti. We look at the example of Iraq, Afghanistan, and yeah. ask, you know, what good has the U.S. brought to any of these countries, if not more death? And I think that's sort of what young Cuban people will have to sort of deal with in any of their sort of protests or any of their desires to see change in Cuba. They have to know that the U.S. actually isn't capable of bringing any real freedom to Cuba. If the Cubans have internal contradictions and problems to solve, they must do it among themselves without U.S. intervention. And actually, speaking of contradictions and really the kind of reality before the revolution, I want to get to that right after this break. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. We'll be right back. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Manolo de los Santos about Cuba. And I really want to get to this part of the conversation for this effort on fascism, because before the revolution, the same fascist Jim Crow system 
that existed here in the United States existed in Cuba. But as far as I can tell, far worse, because here at the center of empire, there are a few release valves of education and an opportunity. So when I was reading up on the Batista dictatorship, one researcher said that, you know, a large percentage of the population, and they talked about not just black people, but that a large percentage of the population lived in thatched huts, shacks for, or single room slum housing without electricity or running water. Talking particularly about women, when women worked, it was mostly as personal servants for the rich. Many others were forced into prostitution to survive. And the government even encouraged some women to go into prostitution as part of its allure for tourists. So personally, when I see this 60-year campaign that you talked about against Cuba's revolution, and I witnessed personally in terms of the racism of like this Cuban community in Miami, it tells me that the U.S. and the counter-revolutionaries it funds that are working really hard to return Cuba to that state, it seems like they're, they wanted to return to this state of what I consider to be a fascist Jim Crow system you know, as a black woman looking at this. Okay. And I had an experience about a decade ago being on a journalist junket. And I was with a a woman who was the daughter of white people who had fled Cuba. And we were all in a group and we were talking about Cuba. And many of us were saying, well, we don't understand why you are against the revolution. You know, the U.S. and the people who are supporting this counter-revolutionary move, they just want to see it return to what it was. And we refer to that as like a giant casino and a brothel. And she was really upset with us and she didn't like talk to us like for the rest of the trip. But that's really how I feel. And as a woman and as a black woman looking at what Cuba was before the revolution, I see it as the same as the fascist Jim Crow system that existed here in the U.S., I mean, I fully agree with you. I mean, I think that the U.S. foreign policy towards Cuba has been marked essentially since 1959 with how do they get their plantation back? That's what they see Cuba as. They see Cuba as their lost plantation, their lost casino town, their lost brothel, which they have to recover. It's not even a question of money anymore. It's not a question of what... Cuba is worth itself. It's a question of their pride as the former plantation masters in recovering this piece of land and these people. I think it's, you know, you raise very important points. I think the fact that in 1898, when the U.S. intervened in Cuba's war of independence and basically colonized Cuba, there was already a racist society in Cuba. But the U.S. essentially reinforced it and brought many of its own cultural racist elements into play. And Jim Crow was definitely part of it. When the revolution triumphed in 1959, segregation was a reality for black people living in Cuba. It was almost impossible for young people, black people, mulatos and others to enter the universities. It was impossible for many of them to get any schooling. There was segregation in the parks. There was segregation in the beaches. There was a generally chauvinistic and racist attitude towards all people who weren't white and didn't fit within the mold of what it meant to be Cuban in an American sense. 
So the revolution basically came in and began to chip away at that in some areas more successfully than others. I mean, I don't want to paint Cuba as a perfect society at any point. I mean, I think it's still struggling with the demons of racism to this day. But it's clear that what's happened since 1959 has been an unraveling of the U.S. imperialist and racist system in Cuba. The fact that today young black people are among the brightest in society, they go on to study at the best universities in Cuba and become its doctors, its engineers, its lawyers, its leaders, its thinkers, is remarkable because we know exactly how difficult that would have been in 1959, before 1959. But in fact, we know how difficult it would be for young Black people in most parts of Latin America to achieve what young Black people can achieve in Cuba today. So not to disregard other elements of the story, but it's important definitely to point out that the U.S. has never looked at Cuba as an equal, has never looked at Cuba as a country to respect. On the contrary, it always sees it as the runaway slaves that needs to be brought back to the plantation. Well, you know, here in Washington, D.C., there's so much uproar about the January 6th fascist attack on the U.S. Capitol. There is a group of state legislatures from Texas in town who fled Texas because they refused to vote on voter suppression laws. And by leaving, they are denying the Republicans in that state a quorum to pass these racist voter suppression laws. And I bring it up because there's a lot of focus on these types of issues. January 6th, voter suppression, the legacy of how Trump made it okay for racists to express themselves you know, in an open way. But these same politicians and media don't really see the connection between fighting for these things here in the U.S., yet opposing the ability for people in Cuba, including, you know, Afro descendants in Cuba to have sovereignty, even looking at, even though it's on the other side of the world, someone like Donna Brazil or Cory Booker, African-Americans speaking out in support of the, the MEK, a terrorist group that has terrorized and murdered people in Iran. So, They don't see these as hypocrisies, as inconsistencies, if you're supposedly for human rights. But you can't just be for human rights for people here, right? It seems that you have to be for human rights for people everywhere. And being in support of sanctions that are killing people, literally, not just in Cuba, but in Venezuela and Iran and all around the world is just inconsistent if you want to call yourself in any way progressive and caring about human rights for everybody. I mean, it's right down shameful because I think it, it gives dishonor to the legacy of the strong bond of solidarity between African-American peoples in the United States and black peoples all over the world, in particular in places like Cuba in Latin America. I mean, going back to the Cuban wars of independence Antonio Maceo, the great black general who led armies of former slaves to burn down the plantations of the white ruling class in Cuba, received immense support from counterparts in the United States. I mean, 
In fact, during the Cuban Wars of Independence, they knew that they couldn't count on the white press in the United States to tell their story. They counted on black newspapers to tell their story. We know very well the history of how it was African-American leaders and writers, intellectuals, workers, peasants, who were the ones willing to travel to Cuba in the 60s and 70s and be in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. You know, there's just so many histories that bring us together, that remind us of the common struggle, the common fate that we have, of the common enemies that we have, that it's a shame that there are now a few misleaders in the Black community in the United States that seem to want to stand at the same side of the oppressors and the exploiters. But we know that that's actually not the popular sentiment. We know that that's actually not representative of most Black people in this country. Because when young Black people went out to protest last year in the heat of the summer against white supremacy and capitalism, when they revolted against the police state that is this country, their biggest sympathizers were in Cuba. Most of the young people in Cuba stood at, in awe and went out in support of the young people of the United States. Mm. So we hope to see that in the ways that are possible and available, the black community will again stand with Cuba and be in solidarity. Right. And, and not be fooled by kind of mouthpieces. Like it's just disgraceful. Like you said, someone, they see someone like Joanne Reed on MSNBC, like gleefully reporting on, misreporting on these protests in, in a way to be against the government of Cuba. Just disgraceful. But I'm going to have to wind it up here. Well, I've been speaking with Manolo de los Santos. He's founding director of the People's Forum in New York City and a researcher and specialist in Latin America with the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Esther. And Manolo de los Santos will have the last word on today's show. Special thanks to him and all of our guests. And a special, special thanks to Lydia Curtis for her contribution to today's broadcast. And check out our bonus content on our website from Professor Gerald Horn about the latest on the relationship between the EU, the United States, and Germany especially, and how this relationship will be impacted by new rules on climate coming from Europe. You'll have to check that out. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can always check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook and Twitter. And thank you to all of our supporters on patreon.com at On the Ground Show for your encouragement. Our podcast, On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Street Fighter Mas by Kamasi Washington, Homage a Jean Dominique by Wyclef Jean, Begin to Be Good by Chucho Valdez, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.
This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.